134 of the Church Bible. <clears throat> and we're reading from Micah chapter 6 uh, and verse 9 through to uh, chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> Micah chapter 6, verse 9. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars. And their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but not save. Because you, what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on your cells. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Umrai and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled at doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen has come, the day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me... I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now it's perhaps a strange providence that on a Diamond Jubilee weekend that this should be the passage that we come to in Micah as we've been preaching through it. I say this for a number of reasons. Firstly, This weekend is, of course, a celebration of the 60 years uh, that the Queen has been on the throne. It's a celebration of nationhood, when we're all meant to get together and have a big party. Yet in this passage from Micah, the mood is not celebratory. But also in this weekend, we're, we're thinking and celebrating our nation and the long history of our Queen's reign. And this passage, I think in some ways... It's not just an ancient commentary on an ancient society. I think in many ways it is an ancient commentary on our modern society. 
for it deals with very modern issues. How do we, the people of God, manage in a society that is fast turning its back on God and on Christianity? And who can deny it is facing God's judgment. The 60 years that Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne has been a time of incredible change. Not only for our country but for the world. I don't think we can draw a historical parallel between any other time period and this one that has witnessed the speed and the degree of change that we have seen in 60 years under one lifetime. This week there's been, of course, a number of newspaper articles uh, commenting on the changes that the country has witnessed. Uh, In the 1950s there were more marriages, fewer divorces, fewer single-parent families, not to mention the fact that church attendance was huge. Well over half the population went to church. Christian morality on things like sex, on things like abortion, were just assumed in many ways when the Queen was crowned in 1952. But from that time onwards, we have witnessed change in an unprecedented scale. Who would have thought that in 1952, in the space of just under a lifetime, The printing press would be on the verge of redundancy due to the invention of e-readers, the Kindle or the iPad. How many would have thought that about walking up to a platform with notes to speak and having them downloaded onto an iPad? Not to mention, of course, we have the internet. We have not just computers, but personal computers and laptops, internet on your mobile phone and so on. And then there's other changes as well. We've got a coffee shop culture. You walk down the railway platform uh, at the station and people are standing there with their latte or their mochaccino or whatever it may be. People today are more involved in office work and business than they were. Even, of course, with the wonderful technological and medical advances, the incredible standards of living that we have enjoyed, we also, of course, have massive problems that either did not exist or weren't as bad or as a bigger problem in the 1950s. Family breakdown has rocketed. The sexual revolution has come and gone and left its indelible mark on our culture. Drugs and addiction have become so common that we no longer really even try and stop it. We have entered that phase of we have to manage it and for some even accept it. And then there's the church. The church has witnessed wholesale abandonment over the course of the past 60 years. The church's voice in society has all but disappeared. And when it does speak, it is often confused and ignorant. Christianity, which was the very foundation of much of our nation, what our nation was built upon, is on the verge of disintegration. At least that's what the media and some people would like us to think. It has to be said, the last 60 years have not been Christianity's finest hour in this country. But how do we deal with it? How do we, as the people of God, look at this situation? How do we live in it? How do we despair? Or do we live with hope? Do we run and hide? Or do we have confidence that God will and can act? This passage in Micah is filled with doom and gloom. It's not a cheery picture. 
But I think it has a lot to teach us. And it has a lot in it that will help us. So I think there's three main things I want to highlight from this. Firstly, in verses uh, 9 through 16, we find God speaking to a wicked house. Then in chapter 7, the first six verses, we see misery in the midst of depravity. And verse 7, we find hope in the face of despair. Now this section of Micah's book is indeed a section that looks at judgment. God has pronounced a message through Micah to his people that isn't very pleasant. Before, of course, he's going to turn uh, to a great message of renewal and hope in chapter 7, verse 8. But verse 9 here of chapter 6 begins with a command, a command to listen. A command to pay attention because God is calling to the city. The city being Jerusalem. And Micah adds that to fear God's name is wisdom. For he understood that the beginning of wisdom is indeed the fear of the Lord. And fear in the sense there of obedience. And what is God saying to Jerusalem? He tells them, heed the rod and the one who appointed it. The rod here, of course, is the instrument of punishment. In this case, uh, I think we can take it to refer to the Assyrian army, who was on the, the very near horizon, about to, if they hadn't already begun to, invade the southern kingdom of Judah. They are to be God's rod, his instrument for the judgment of his people. And the reason why this judgment is coming follows in verses uh, 10 to 12. And it all revolves around the business practices of the people in Jerusalem. Micah in this book has already talked about the injustice there is in Judah. The way that the poor are cheated, that the sharp business practices of the rich business classes are awful. But here it comes straight from the Lord himself. And he asks them, am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasure, the short ephah? In other words, God is saying, will I just pass over these things? The answer, of course, is no. God is not going to overlook them. His patience with his people and their failure to obey him has come to an end. God is not going to let them off the hook. The man with the dishonest scales and the bag of false weights, they're not going to get away with it. The rich who use violence and use deceit to get their own way, God is not going to let it continue. Time is short. The rich and powerful classes in Jerusalem have ignored the commands of God's law. They have used dishonest scales. They have used false weights to cheat people out of their money and so increase their profit margins. Honesty is no longer the best policy, says Micah, in Jerusalem when lies and deception are so much more profitable. And God has become fed up with the way in which this injustice has spread. In verse 8, of chapter 6, Micah had shown us what was required of God's people to act justly, to love mercy. But there was none of this in the business world of 8th century Jerusalem. And as a result, the rich got richer and the poor got trampled on. Therefore, verse 13, I have already begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins, says the Lord. God declares that no longer will he pass over these things and ominously, 
he says that his judgment has already begun. It's already real for the people. It's not just about the Assyrians who are going to come and destroy the land and burn the crops and so on as they invade. Or later the Babylonian exile when the people are carried away. God has already acted to bring judgment. For although they are rich and can afford plenty of food, they will never find any satisfaction in it. Although their bank accounts are full to overflowing, they have nothing because God is about to take it all away. Though the rich steal the inheritance of others and plant lots of land with great harvests, they will not have the chance to use them. They will not have the chance to use the oil from their olive trees or the grapes from their vines. They will have so much, yet they will have nothing. There will be no satisfaction in what they have. Exile and enemy will eat up all that they thought they had. They will be like the rich man in Jesus' parable who had a good crop. So what did he do? He pulled down his barns and he built bigger ones. And he said to himself, I'll take it easy. I'll drink. I'll eat. I'll be merry. But he was a fool. Because God that night would take everything from him. He was rich in things, but he was not rich towards God. And in verse 16, we come to the heart of the problem as God sees it. The people have followed the ways of Umri and Ahab. Ahab, of course, if you read through uh, 1 Kings, and especially at the end of the book, he was one of the worst kings that had ever come to the northern kingdom of Israel, which was probably taken away completely by now, at this point in Micah's time. He was the one who, of course, married the uh, Baal-worshipping princess from Sidon, Jezebel. He erected the temple of Baal in Samaria, in the capital of the northern city. He was a sharp businessman. He stole Naboth's vineyard from him by murdering him. God says that Jerusalem has followed his path because they have not obeyed the statutes of the Lord And run after false gods. They have made things their highest goal. And failed to give exclusive worship to Yahweh. To their God. The punishment that God speaks of in verses 13 through 15. Are very similar to the covenant curses. That God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 28. He warned the people there that when they disobeyed. That he would reject them in these ways. Therefore ruin has come to you, and I will make you bear the scorn of nations, says the Lord. God is not going to allow this to continue. Public morality had come to its lowest end, and now God will act to stop the injustice and the wickedness and the idolatry. And when you look at the things that that God calls sin here, and the action that he takes in judging them, it's not hard for us to think of our own situation in our own nation. I watched some time ago now, very uh, interestedly, uh, George Osborne's first speech as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And in it he said that he understood that a nation is more than just its economy. And I can remember thinking at the time, I really, really hope you mean that. However, all we seem to be worried about at the present time is the economy. Money seems to be the most important thing. The great danger is that, when the, of course, when the profit margin becomes our only moral compass, that is very bad for people. 
For people stop being people, they stop being human beings and they become consumers. Or worse, simply a number on a spreadsheet. And if your fellow consumers are only really a means for you to make profit, then who cares how you treat them? Once you go down this route, you end in a very dangerous place. It's not a surprise, really, that when money becomes our God, that we inevitably treat people unjustly. One of the things that is really different today than 60 years ago is the way in which our nation has displaced Christianity with its love of money. We have so much, and yet we are no happier or no more satisfied with life. We have more choice, and yet we still cannot get enough. The Bishop of London just yesterday was saying similar things. I don't think it's wrong to say that in some way God is judging us as a nation for our failure to live according to his desired way. I walked through the Overgate uh, not that long ago. And I was just walking through, I was watching what was going on all around me. And I couldn't help but think to myself... As the people busily went around shopping and doing all the various things, I couldn't help thinking, I'm in a modern day temple. We've stopped building churches and we've started building supermarkets. Temples to the gods of the market and money and self. In that um, fountain of all knowledge called the Metro last week, uh, I read a story about how the consumer group which uh, have discovered that the big supermarkets are ripping people off with their uh, three for two offers and things. Basically what they do is they bump up the price before they put the offer on for a long period of time and then once the offer comes on it makes people think that they're actually getting a bargain. Micah gives us an ancient commentary on a modern problem. Injustice is still with us. Dishonest scales may come in the form of three-for-two offers in large supermarkets, but they're still there. Dishonesty in the business world is still a problem, not just in the business world. We just take a look at our banks and the mortgage problems that they've got themselves into. But the trouble is that God's people were in Jerusalem too. It wasn't just a problem for the rich and powerful. It was a problem for God's people as well. And this takes us to the second point, misery in the midst of depravity. Micah looks round at the city and the people and the society that he lives in and he simply laments. He laments its corruption, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7. What misery is mine, he says. He looks around and he sees all the sinful brokenness of the society that he lives in and it makes him utterly miserable to look at it, to think about it. And what's more, he's already warned them, heed the rod. Micah knows that he lives in a city that is experiencing God's judgment and is about to experience it. The Assyrians are coming. Later on it will be the Babylonians. He has warned them. He has spoken God's word, warning, uh, a warning in very frank terms. And he's also given them a message of hope, but they makes no difference, makes no difference to them. Micah sees himself 
in this illustration as a, as a thirsty and hungry person in search of, of leftover grapes or figs in the, in the trees. Now, of course, the leftovers were supposed to be uh, left there for the poor to come and, and pick up after the harvest was over. But there's nothing there. The trees are bare, the figs are gone. It's like he's went hungry, he's went hungry to the fridge and he's opened it and he's found that it's bare, there's nothing in it, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to drink. And he explains in verse 2 what he means. He looks round for the godly, but he can't find them. They've been swept away. There's nobody left who is upright. So bad has it become, so all pervasive has the corruption become, that when he looks at the leaders, when he looks at the powerful in Jerusalem, he can't find any who are righteous. He can't see any fear of God or any of them who love mercy and who act justly. The public life of Jerusalem is not characterized here by love of neighbor, by self-sacrifice, but by self-love. It's a place where prophets trump prayer, where power is more important than peace. It's a violent, evil, and corrupt public life that Micah sees and he laments. Rich and powerful conspire together in order to get exactly what their sinful hearts desire. Self-interest and greed become the normal order of the day in Jerusalem. And says Micah, the day of the watchman has come. The watchman who stood on the city walls and cried out when the enemy was in sight. Or we could, of course, take this as well. We can take this in the future tense. It will come, which might be more accurate. The day that God will visit you. And what Micah is saying here is, this isn't going to be the nice, friendly, little chit-chat round the dinner table. This is the visit of God's judgment. The great day when God acts to judge the wickedness that Micah sees and that God sees in the life of God's people in Jerusalem. Yet Micah's misery at the public corruption isn't the entire problem. For the private lives of the people in Jerusalem are not very much better. Verse 5 and 6. Micah takes a look at the most basic relationships that people enjoy. That of neighbors, wives and husbands, sons and daughters, even daughters-in-law, the mother-in-law. Micah pictures here a society in breakdown when not even the most intimate relationships can be relied upon when distrust and self-interest rule not just the public sphere but private lives of the population as well when families break down to the point of becoming enemies you know that things have become bad it is a depressing it is a miserable picture of a city in the midst of total sinful breakdown. Where mercy has been replaced with violence, where justice has failed, and where self-interest has become the only moral standard. And it isn't the fault of the system, the government or the education system, although they may play a part. It was the depravity of the human heart. The wickedness that so easily takes root in the lives of people. And if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, none of us can claim to be free from that. I certainly can't. 
Like Micah's Jerusalem, our time really is no different. Each of us lives within a nation that is broken and corrupt in many ways. The media and politicians might shout loud about transparency and openness and accountability. Yet all of us have seen and witnessed the corruption and self-interest at work in the public life of our nation. Micah's commentary on the social breakdown in Jerusalem could easily have been written about 21st century, insert whatever Scottish city or British city or Irish city you want. But how do we live in the midst of it? When we look about and we see the pain and the hopelessness, I'm sure many of you feel the pressure, the pressure that seems to be growing on Christians in particular over the past number of years. It seems that the whole narrative, the whole culture, the whole way of our society has turned against Christianity and especially a Christian understanding of morality. And for many of us, we are like Micah. We look around and we see the hurt and we see the sorrow and we see the brokenness. We see the sinful arrogance of the world and it makes us miserable. Perhaps even fearful. Scared for the future. We see evidence of God's judgment in our society and we wonder what is going to happen. We look at our children and we wonder what sort of place are they going to grow up in? How will we protect them? How will we help them through it all? At least that's the way I see it. The temptation is, of course, to simply despair. To run and hide away from it all. But Micah gives us a different answer to how we deal with what we witness around us. And this answer is is hope in the midst of despair. But as for me, says Micah, even though I feel and experience the pain of watching my own people destroy themselves and know the inevitable judgment that God will bring Even with it all, I watch in hope. Hope for the Lord. And I wait for God my Savior. Micah's hope was not in a government or a king in Jerusalem. His hope did not stand or fall on his food in his belly or his health. It was in God. It was in Yahweh the covenant Lord. It was the one who had had brought his people out of Egypt. And given them the promised land. It was the one who promised and particularly promised to be their saviour, their rescuer. Micah's hope was not in a God of stone or wood or money, but a God who could and would save. In chapter 5, Micah showed us a, a little of that hope when he spoke about the future and about a man who would come from Bethlehem, about a Messiah And the hope that he would bring to God's people. For Micah, his hope hope was in the future. In the salvation that God would bring through the Messiah, through Jesus. And even though he himself would experience judgment and he would come through all of this along with everyone else in Jerusalem. He would hope that God would still be a saviour. His hope was in God. And for us, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have even more reason to be people of hope because we have the gospel. We have God's promises. We have seen with our eyes, if you like, 
that God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We have heard that message of salvation. We have seen God's love for sinners displayed on a man who stretched himself out on a cross. Micah did not have the privilege of knowing what we know. And so we should be and are people of hope. Even in the midst of of a despairing world. A world in the midst of its own sinful brokenness. We know that God has acted to rescue us. That he has proven himself to be a faithful saviour. And that nothing in this world can take that away from us. Our hope is not in the government's abilities in our nation, even in the monarchy. Our hope is in Christ. The Christ who died to save us from our sinfulness. Who died to rescue us from the most horrid problem of all. The problem of God's judgment on our sin. So therefore we might lose everything. Everything that we have in this life. And yet we will still have hope. Because we have God's promises. Given to us in Jesus. That we have been rescued And that one day, God will put it all right. When Jesus comes again and makes it all new, we will not face the judgment, but we will pass from death to life. That is God's promise. And that is our hope. That is the power of the gospel. It is the love that God has shown us in Christ. And today, uh, as a nation... Perhaps not, you don't. But if you celebrate the Queen's 60 years in her reign, we do so as people who have hope. Not in the things of this world, but in the promises we have in Christ. Let me finish with a quote from the Queen, taken from her Christmas speech just passed in 2011. She said this, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Nobody knows, none of us know what will happen in the future of our country. We can't say if things will improve for Christians and for what Christians believe in this country. But as God's people, no matter what takes place, no matter what the future throws up, no matter what we have to go through, we go through it with faith in Jesus and with hope. Knowing that God, who created it all, who sustains it all and knows it all, has plans for us, his people. And that in Jesus... In Jesus, we are forgiven, we are secure, and we are loved like we've never, ever been. And that, my friends, that, my friends, is a wonderful, a wonderful place to be. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that in it we have hope. That though all around us we see evidence of the brokenness of sin, 
the, the way it breaks down relationships, the way it causes people to hurt one another, the way in which people reject you and what is good. Yet, Lord, we thank you that we can rest in Jesus and that, know, that we know as your people that no matter what takes place for us, we rest assured in his grace and his love for us and nothing in this world can change it. Help us, Lord, to live for you in trusting in Jesus, resting secure in all that he has done for us and hoping for our future where he will come and bring us to be with him and where the, he will take away all the pain and the sorrow and that we will be like him and we will see him as he is. We thank you for these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.